Operating a data center has been turned into a service. For most new companies, managing real-world servers is no longer an issue. But one exception is if your startup is a company offering the data center as a service. In this episode, we talk with Sam Kotler, engineering manager at DigitalOcean. We talk about the product development that goes on at DigitalOcean and how the company differentiates itself from competitors. You may have heard previous sponsorship advertisements on Software Engineering Daily about DigitalOcean, and that's because I genuinely love the product, I'm genuinely interested in the engineering of the company. Sam Codler is an engineering manager at DigitalOcean, a cloud infrastructure provider built for developers. Sam, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. I want to start by exploring DigitalOcean's product from a high level. So I'm a developer, I have a web app that I've developed locally, like a Rails app, for example, and I want to deploy it to a server where the rest of the world can have access to it and use my application. Before DigitalOcean existed, what were my options? I mean, so there were a number of different ways that people would approach this this problem, right? So in the in the kind of first bubble, everyone bought hardware, right? So you would get you would raise money and then you would go to Sun Microsystems or whoever and buy a bunch of hardware, and you would put it in a closet in your office or something, right? And then later came kind of um, the the kind of larger thing of of kind of people would would host uh, would host stuff in in managed facilities, right? And that was kind of the rise of of a lot of the managed hosting companies. And then AWS came along, and uh, and a lot of people moved to AWS. But AWS left a big gap in the market, which was basically AWS is trying to be an infrastructure provider that targets every single piece of enterprise functionality that you could really ever need, right? And so DigitalOcean's role in this whole thing is um, kind of simple compute resources, and we're working on storage and networking-related products right now as well um, to basically be able to run you know, different kinds of applications in the cloud without having to you know, have a PhD in AWS. So if I choose to go with DigitalOcean over AWS, what are the set of trade-offs that I'm making? Yeah, I mean, so we're, you're really trading off breadth, right? So DigitalOcean has, a, has solely a compute offering right now, um, whereas Amazon has lots of different services that involve object and block storage, that involve you know, VPC. Um, we have floating IP to compete with um, Amazon's Elastic IP, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a number of, of other services they have. So really, you know, we're a lot more focused in what we do and we're going to continue to be a lot more focused in what we do. Um, so I think the real trade-off is, is really like the breadth of products that you have access to. Most of our customers, though, actually want to make the trade-off towards having fewer options, right? So um, instead of, you know, having, having like, you know, less potential options in terms of how you build systems... Um, a lot of our customers are kind of AWS refugees uh, who, um, you know, really don't want all of the stuff that Amazon has, and they just want a really easy-to-use system um, that is reliable, but also, you know, doesn't necessarily have the kind of, uh, you know, complexity trade-offs that you have to make on, on Amazon. Yeah, I can count myself in the AWS refugee camp not not at all a knock against aws but just like the i remember the first time i tried to launch an application on aws i was going through all these tutorials it was really complicated and uh contrasting that with my experience on DigitalOcean, it was like 
you know, several clicks, and then I had access to a server, and I just SSH'd in, and yep. it was magical. So on DigitalOcean, you call your server instances droplets. And when I create a droplet from the DigitalOcean online portal, what is going on at DigitalOcean's end? Uh, so we have a bunch of, of, you know, people who just sit and wait for... <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> um, we... we um, <laughs> Uh, our 300 funny. employees schedule the droplet. Um, no, you, the, have, you have uh, Amazon <laughs> Mechanical Turk people yeah. who are awaiting the request. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, no, so, so you know, we, we obviously run a, a distributed scheduling system that basically makes selections for the type of droplet to, that you created. So, say, you know, if, if you created an 8-gigabyte droplet, you know, we need to figure out where in the fleet in this specific region uh, that droplet can get scheduled, right? So that that uh, that scheduling system is responsible for a number of different things, but you know, there is kind of a centralized queuing system that then uh, you know essentially goes out into the fleet and 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 looks at uh, availability uh, of of resources, right? So it's basically a resource scheduler, um, a la you know kind of lots of the other schedulers that have popped up in recent years. So, you know, not with the complexity of Mesos, but along similar lines, right? You're trying to do, um, you know, you're trying to optimize uh, memory packing and binary packing and things like that. Mm. So from DigitalOcean's point of view, is is my droplet going to be a virtual machine or is it a container or what exactly? Yeah, so it, it's hardware virtualized. Um, so it is, it's actually a virtual machine. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for that is that even still, you know, the kind of container ecosystem doesn't have good enough security yet on Linux, um, I should say, because, you know, on things like SmartOS, there is good enough security, but then there's other kinds of general adoption issues. Um, and so, you know, we, we are... Um, we are basically working on a lot of that kind of stuff uh, to kind of improve the reliability of those things and the security because the containerization on Linux is not is not very good at all. Mm. So, you know, we can we can run a process, but it, it's not. You know, we can run a process in a container and give people access to that, but it's not secure enough on Linux yet. Right, hardware virtualization is still kind of the only way. Um, so if, if, I guess, do you think the, it'll get to the point where you can have a one-to-one mapping between droplets and containers? Yeah. Yeah. Eventually I think we, okay. we, we could do that. Um, you know, hardware virtualization has, has other benefits, right? So some of those are things like, uh, you know, entirely in kernel routing. Um, and there are another, there are a number of other kind of things that are nice about hardware virtualization. There are also a lot of things that aren't nice, right? It's, it's not particularly resource efficient uh, and it has performance issues at, at some turns. Um, you know, we obviously optimize things pretty intensely in order to mitigate a lot of those, those issues. But there, there are, you know, there are some downsides to hardware virtualization. There are also some downsides to containerization. So, you know, there's trade-offs to be made everywhere. Well, what kinds of economies of scale do you think you could get if you were if you moved all the droplets from VMs to containers, I don't actually I don't actually know exactly what that would look like yet. Um, it's something that we could you know potentially do. Um, I will say that like in terms of resource commitment, almost nothing would change. Oh, 
Interesting. Um, okay. At least if if we were going to give people the same kind of resources, right? So right now our model is kind of based on giving you a virtual machine. So if we were going to allocate you, say, 8 gigs of memory, an 80 gigabyte disk, uh, and let's say four cores, that we would still have to do that, right? So like we don't... Since we're not doing like application runtime, we're actually giving people the resources. Our resource commitments wouldn't particularly change. Mm. Okay, so if I'm if I create my droplet, I'm SSH'd into it. Uh, I'm doing development stuff, and the server that my droplet is on dies. What happens? Yeah, so uh, droplets are actually localized to a single box, right? So there's no kind of high availability across the system, so you're tied to a single node. That's something that oh. might change in the future. Um, we have very, very large centralized storage systems in each region that store backups, so you know we never lose hypervisors, but sometimes they get rebooted, right? So okay. in the case of us losing a hypervisor or someone doing something to their droplet, uh, backups are, are the way to kind of handle that. Um, but, you know, that, that state is, is very localized to the hypervisor right now. What's the replication factor for, for my droplet? It's not replicated. Okay, so, oh, so it's not replicated. So, okay, so what do I have to, do I have to, do I have to configure it to be backed up or, or what exactly? Yeah, it's literally just a checkbox, but even still that backup oh. is is just the the kind of back-end storage. So that means that we'll take uh, a snapshot of the droplet and then store that on centralized storage. So that's not that's not high availability. It's very hard to do high availability. It's actually, I, I will go out and say it's virtually impossible to do high availability uh, without having the applications cooperate in that, right? So... Mm. Lots of people write software that runs in the run inside of droplets that can't run on more than one instance, right? So, like, that's really an application choice more than it is an infrastructure provider choice, um, unless you have some control over the application, which we really don't, right? We're giving you kind of a raw resource to run your application on top of. So, you know, people, uh, a huge number of our customers obviously kind of set up their own high availability systems on top of our infrastructure. Mm, I but see. It, is, so, it is extraordinarily difficult to actually get like systems that are not built to be distributed to be distributed. Right. Okay, so if I wanted that availability, I would have to spin up you know, three to five DigitalOcean boxes and then set up ZooKeeper between them or something like that. Right. So... Um, what are some what are some common failure scenarios that that you guys experience like just dealing with the scale of servers and data centers and everything? Yeah, so basically any kind of failure that you can imagine <laughs> happening will happen uh, at a particular scale, right? So uh, I focus a lot on the hardware side of things uh, as well. So I, I kind of um, I manage a team called Platform Engineering that is kind of the intermediary point between the hardware and, you know, software and application teams, uh, as well as like 24 by 7 operational teams. So, you know, literally any kind of failure you can imagine, you'll see. So the kinds of failures we see are, um, you know, networks are unreliable, um, which is uh, just a byproduct of networks. It has nothing to do with our network. Um, they're inherently built to be unreliable in some ways, right? So they're they're focused on 
um, certain kinds of availability. So this this might involve public public internet connectivity and things like that. Um, a lot of the stuff that I see uh, is is very related to the hardware. So you know everything from like disk controller firmware bugs, um, you know drive controller firmware bugs. Um, what else have we seen? Uh, driver bugs in Nix, driver bugs in storage-related things, BIOS misconfigurations, um, BIOS bugs, uh, <laughs> uh, application layer bugs. You know, at, at a certain scale, you just see literally everything. Were, were, um, you all, were you always like a hardware guy, or did you have to learn these these hardware <coughs> concepts and these whatever is at the interface between software and hardware as you were doing work at DigitalOcean? So I worked at I worked on Linux at um, at Red Hat before DigitalOcean. So you know that's kind of where I first got exposed to a lot of hardware related things because when you're working on operating system stuff, there's so much hardware dependence throughout the operating system, um, right? And and when you're virtualized or when you're running in a container, that's just a different type of hardware essentially to the operating system, right? You have you're emulating a bunch of devices that are not actually there. Mm. So. You know, a lot of that stuff um, you can, you know, you can learn outside of it. But um, yeah, hardware related things are really interesting because hardware, unlike software, uh, at least in our case, unlike software, has the side effect of being vendor dependent, right? So one of the things that we've done really aggressively over the past, um, you know, maybe year, year and a bit, maybe five quarters, let's say, is aggressively remove. Um, hardware dependence, like, you know, vendor dependence for our hardware. So moving, you know, virtual switching into software, moving RAID into software, um, basically pushing everything into software so that we have much less of a vendor dependence. Mm. So there's so there's no switching cost. And if, if, you, if you find some kind of problem with a particular vendor, it's easy to move off of it. Yeah, and it also just means that you know, there there are so many different potential issues with, with different vendors, right? So, you know, a great example was uh, in 2013, there were tsunamis in Southeast Asia, which wiped out a lot of the factories that where they were manufacturing uh, NAND for solid-state drives, right? Wow. And, like, that's a case where we need to be able to move between different vendors um, because, you know, say, you know, one vendor might not have a facility anymore in which to build NAND, and we can't wait six months to get more capacity out. How much time do you actually have to spend in a data center? None. None at all? Yeah, no. Do you, do, how much understanding do you have of what is going on in a data center? A lot. <laughs> okay. Um, most Basically, you know, a huge amount of my focus is really on understanding and inspecting through telemetry data, through monitoring and metrics, through logging, what's actually happening inside of those data centers. Okay, interesting. Um, so how does the fact that you're working with multiple data centers change how you engineer systems? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. So um, there are a couple of things, right? So one is we try to eliminate centralized system to the extent centralized systems to the extent that it's possible, right? So we don't want things to run in one region, and we want things that are regional, regionally focused to be hermetic to that region, right? So say a great example is our storage system, which we call image management, uh, is based off of Google's GFS paper, 
So basically the way that, that the system works is you ask a centralized indexer um, basically where, uh, where an object lives that you have an idea of, and then it, it issues you a 301, and you go and fetch it off of that files, file server. And um, basically the way that this works for us is in every region we run Zookeeper to maintain high availability and basically do heartbeats, and then that system is entirely localized to the region. So Zookeeper runs in the region, the MySQL that stores all of the metadata runs in that region, and the file servers all run in that region. Right, so we try to design systems that can be run independent of one another. Right, so we have eleven data centers, um, and we have eleven instances of of image management running. Mm. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff. Then there's also, you know, there's, um, you know, we have basically. I can't talk more about it for security reasons, but basically we have private connectivity between certain facilities. So that's another thing that allows us to. Um, to to kind of get you know data center to data center access. Uh, in terms of how we design services, you know, we're we really push hard for regions to be hermetic, right? We don't want NYC two to go down because something failed, or you know, the control plane in NYC two to go down because something failed in NYC three. So um, when you think about worst case scenarios. Um, I don't know if you can answer this, but like how many data centers would have to fail for you to lose data? Um, that's actually a really complicated question um, for lots of reasons. Um, yeah, that's like, that's a really complicated question. Um, I would say, well, so we don't, like data centers can go down and we don't lose data, right? So, like the data center would have to burn to the ground for us to lose data. Um, and even in that case, if you've backups enabled, we have offsites. So, you know, the blast radius is pretty gigantic for data mm. loss, right? Data loss, data loss is like the absolute worst thing that can happen ever. Right. Um, you know, droplets go down and, and, and that's, you know, an unfortunate thing for customer reliability. And we, we drive that reliability as hard as possible. But, um, you know, it, it really is the kind of thing where, you know, physical issues have to take place for us to lose data. Hmm. So you're an engineering manager at DigitalOcean. And I'm curious what that means from, I guess, from an organizational perspective and from a product perspective. Like, I'm curious what your what your responsibilities are and, and what the engineering management challenges are that are unique to a cloud service provider? Yeah. Um, so basically my job is, is a couple of things. Um, one is to kind of help build and refine the roadmap for the team um, and help kind of overcome people and technical challenges, right? So whether that means, you know, helping encourage cross-team collaboration or, um, you know, helping two people work out a dispute or building a better understanding between our team and another team that we work closely with. Those are the kinds of things that I work on day to day. Um, also, obviously, hiring and kind of people management are are those, you know, are, are part of that responsibility set as well. I would say that the kind of like management things that we have at DigitalOcean are a lot more closely tied to the fact that we're a rapidly growing startup than they are to the fact that we're an infrastructure provider. Mm. Um, right? So, I joined uh, DO in April of, of 2014, so almost two years ago, and we were 40 people, 
And today we're over 200 people. So one of the main things is that the environment just changes so often, right? So there, the, you know, growth of the company makes it hard for us to have the same office space for a very long time. Um, it makes it hard for like everyone to know everyone else, which is super important to building a company that has like, you know, values that focus on, um, on kind of, you know, the people who work for the company. Uh, so that, those are the main, those are the main challenges is really like helping drive stability and, and clarity even throughout the team as the company continues to grow. Um, and understanding our role in, in the whole thing. So those are really kind of what what that looks like. I, yeah, but I would say it's a much more distinct thing around startup management than it is around kind of infrastructure management as a whole. There are, I mean, there are unique infrastructure management challenges. Uh, one of those things is that, like, everything physically exists somewhere, um, which is not, <laughs> right, like, actually getting things to places is, is pretty hard. Um you know, especially like when borders get involved and things like that. So, um, so that's, that's a big part of the, um, you know, of the challenges, but overall, you know, it's an incredibly like rewarding thing to see the company grow in this way. Um, I started the platform team in uh, almost exactly a year ago. So we're now seven people. So it's, you know, becomes a significant team. So I've heard these insane stories about what it's like to work at AWS because the customer expectations are so high, the stakes are so high, um, things are so complex. You know, AWS runs this giant portion of of the internet and at DigitalOcean, that's becoming an increasingly parallel case. So I would imagine that there is like a similar intensity at DigitalOcean um, but the culture seems more rooted in employee well-being. Like AWS, yep. it's AWS. It's it's like this. It's I get the sense that it's like this boot camp mentality. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I don't say that at all in judgment. Um, like if you if you hear uh, interviews of the tw- I've heard interviews of the Twilio CEO, and he talks about how hard AWS was and how much he learned, and like that's how he built Twilio was like from the from the boot camp education of AWS. Um, but similarly, you know, I, I, I certainly don't see any criticism to be, be levied at, uh, you know, the digital ocean, uh, environment that seems more happy. And so I'm, but I'm curious how you get, or how you will maintain the happiness when you are in such a high stress, uh, high uptime, high on-call rotation, I imagine, um, environment. So basically, you know, a huge amount of our uh, our focus as a company has been around kind of building and refining a set of values of who who we are, right? So we have, um, you know, a set of a really great set of values actually um, that I think really guide the way. And I think there's a couple of things along those lines that are are super important for building a company where people are nice to each other and care about each other which is what we're trying to build here, right? So one of those things is uh, what we call love, right? So Moise Retsu, who's one of the founders of DigitalOcean, uh, has, has said many different quotes about love, but, but some of them are you know, kind of focused on why we work as hard as we do, why we, why we get things done in the way that we do. Um, and you're absolutely right that it's a high-stress environment, but I think working with people 
who A, you trust, and and B, you trust to speak up, which are really two of our kind of fundamental values. Like, if you see something wrong, say something about it. Um, you know, when other people speak, listen to what they're saying and actually, like, process it um, and treat others well, right? Like, I think that's part of it is, like, a lot of companies don't explicitly say we're going to care about how people get treated here and how people interact here. Um, and so I think that's been something that's been really powerful for DigitalOcean. As we've grown a lot, so much of that has stayed around, which I think is incredible, right? Like, when when you've taken a cultural ethos that's developed to 20 people and scale it to 40 people, that's an accomplishment. When you scale it to 40 to 100, that's an accomplishment. And when you scale it, you know, to the past 200 level, it's, it's a massive, massive accomplishment, I think. And, you know, it really speaks to the founders of DigitalOcean and how, how much they cared about, like, how people interact with one another, right? So, you, like, these, these, these kinds of cultural decisions, I think, are explicit decisions. A lot of people talk about how they're not explicit decisions, but I think, you know, in the case of Amazon, I've never worked at Amazon, so I can't really comment on their culture. But from what I've read about Amazon, you know, they, they have kind of a pressure cooker culture, and that's something that you foster. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we've decided to foster a culture of people who care about each other and want everyone else to be successful um, and not in the, like, bullshit way of, like, oh, we all really like each other. Like, in the way of, like, let's actually figure out how to <laughs> meaningfully impact one another's, like, lives through our work. Yeah, and this – the whole love thing, I actually heard the same thing from Airbnb. Mm. They're really focused on the whole love thing. Um, huh. Interesting. Maybe there'll be some interesting Harvard case studies or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is the what is the on-call rotation like? Yeah, so we have um, a couple of different ways that that's kind of handled, right? So we have a cloud operations team who are kind of responsible for the 24 by 7 operations of our systems, right? So they, they're kind of the first line. Um, and then different engineering team get di- different engineering teams excuse me have different escalation paths right so um, let's say there's some hardware issue um, and you know we work on that that's something that uh, might get escalated into platform let's say there's an operating system that is operating system issue that might get issued in a platform if there's a problem with scheduling new droplets that would um, you know basically get escalated into compute or wherever so Honestly, the on-call rotation um, for for like my team, for example, which is one of the most kind of operationally focused engineering teams, is actually pretty light um, because the cloud operations team is an incredible group of people who um, you know have have taken over the function of of the twenty four by seven operations. It mm. used to be really bad, and so we built out the cloud operations team uh, to kind of own a lot of that stuff. Okay, interesting. So they're they're shift based as opposed to having like an an on call like in the way that you would think of it. Right. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about product engineering, and I understand you know. Uh, well, I guess I'm still not clear exactly uh, if you are involved in this at all. But uh, like, I'm curious how DigitalOcean decides what features to build, and if it's mostly like a reactive process, like in terms of something breaks and a customer makes a request and like this is breaking or is it like proactive and you say, this is something we can provide where customers don't even know that they want it and we're going to give it to them and they're going to love it. 
Yeah, so I think it's really like a combination of the two. Um, I'm not super involved in the early kind of product process just because I'm so far down the stack. Um, but a lot of the stuff that kind of goes on is uh, is a combination of the two, right? So customers say, I want this thing. And we say, okay, we understand that you want that thing. That thing might be a lot more nebulous than um, than what we actually end up delivering, right? So uh, let's say customers say, uh, you know, I want more storage. We might then say, okay, well, let's understand how you're using that storage. And then, you know, we'll figure out how to, how to respond to that, right? So the answer might be object storage, or it might be block storage, or it might be file storage, or it might be just like more local storage. Um, and those are cases where like we can, we can look at that. But a lot of the times, um, so a, a lot of the times we end up in situations where, you know, we say what the customer actually wants based on what the data that we've received is X, right? Where their input into the, into the kind of product process was, I, like, this is a thing I need to be able to do. And then we say, okay, we get it, and then deal with that. Okay, that makes sense. So um, I want to shift the conversation to something you can talk about in more detail. Uh, there was a talk that I saw that you gave about how to debug anything. And we'll put that in the show notes. It was it was a really interesting talk, kind of about the high level debugging process, and a lot of it was like, how do you debug open source software? Mm-hmm. One of the one of the first things you said is that. Most software is pretty bad, and you were referring to open source software such as OpenSSL, and you talked about this interesting compounding effect where software that gets built on top of bad software, it's like the badness compounds on top of it. And DigitalOcean is built largely on the back of open source software. So what are the kinds of problems that emerge from relying on open source? Because you know, at DigitalOcean, you operate at such a scale, I imagine you hit every single long tail crappy issue that you can encounter in open source software. So how do you approach solving those? Yeah, so so I, I mean, I should I should preface that really by saying like, the, I don't think open source software is any, actually, I know as a fact that open source software is of higher quality than proprietary software, right? So it, it has a lot less to do with open source software than it does with how we build software as, as an idea and as an industry, right? So we look at uh, a lot of different things and, you know, make a lot of decisions and introduce a lot of complexity into systems that aren't very complex, right? So, you know, at DigitalOcean, for example, we're, we're massive users of MySQL, right? We have hundreds of MySQL masters. And, um, and the thing about uh, MySQL, for example, is, yeah, there are new databases that have a lot of new features that are useful, for sure. But the operational predictability and the tooling that we get out of MySQL is second to none. We Like, yes, there are newer databases that have newer features, but we choose MySQL time and time again because it has all of these really great operational properties to it, right? And people are running it at scale way bigger than us Almost like MySQL is actually a standout case, I think, because basically every company in the world that's doing massive, massive database stuff runs MySQL. Um, and so, you know, MySQL is a case where like we we get to push down a lot of operational complexity because we just know we and understand how this database works. Um, 
And the same is, you know, we, we've been um, big adopters of Golang, and the same is true for Go. Um, right? Where, like, it, it's just, it's a very sound language. And, yeah, there are, there are languages that have, you know, more features and, and um, you know, deal with different issues differently than Go. But, like, Go really solves a huge problem for us. Um, and so that's something that is, is kind of, like, really, really good about the way that we build software here is, like, we focus on, like, operational effects of building this software because at our scale, you have to, right? Like, we have so much hardware, we have so many data centers that, like, if you don't consider scale in everything that you build, you end up building things that aren't operationally good. Okay. So the talk that you gave was mostly about solving problems in a systematic way, not yep. a way that is loosey-goosey. Uh, is the open source community good at this kind of systematic approach to debugging their software? Yeah. I mean, overall, look, I think the open source community is better at most things than basically every proprietary software company. And that's what I think is really important is like, the idea of the talk isn't actually how to debug anything. It's just like, or how to debug anything, I should say. There are things that you can debug with the information in the talk. But like, the the idea is like how to basically go after the kind of different bits of the system to understand what's actually happening, right? So an example is, um, you know, there are lots of different like languages that I don't know. And... I can go onto like an operating system and debug them because I understand how to introspect on what they're doing. Right. So the fact that I have an understanding of how the operating system works and how software interacts with the operating system and how to inspect the runtime of the operating system gives me the ability to say, Hey, like let's actually look at what's going on here and, and like give, um, give kind of some really great perspective on what's actually happening. And, and that's actually one of the reasons that I love doing operating system work is because um, the thing about operating systems and kernels in particular is that you change the worldview of the software that runs on top of the operating system by changing the kernel, mm. right? So the entire perspective of the piece of software that you're running is dictated by the software that runs under it, which is the kernel. And so that's a really interesting place to be because not only do you control the, the interactions between the hardware and the software, but you also control the interactions between the software and the software where you basically have a high-level piece of software that, that's running in user space, and then you have the kernel, which is taking that stuff and actually you know, making sure that instructions get executed on the, on the processor at, I mean, at a very high brushstroke level. But like... That stuff's really interesting because you can actually change the worldview of the software. Absolutely. So I'm sure that's also the case for debugging many distributed systems problems. Because mm -hmm. if you're if you're if you're operating at the level of a distributed system, that's kind of like the, you know, and, and you're changing the distributed systems infrastructure. It's sort of like changing the operating system uh, if you're if you're operating on a single box. Um, so I want to put this in in concrete terms. You know, the first piece of advice about debugging distributed systems that you gave is to suspend your disbelief. Can can you tell me about a recent distributed systems problem you encountered that was unbelievable, where <laughs> suspension of disbelief was kind of an important first principle? Um, 
I could talk about, well, I could talk about basically solving any systems bug under that guise, <laughs> right? So, um, okay, so here, here's an example. Uh, and this isn't really distributed systems, but it's, it's network related, so it's, it's interesting regardless. Um, and actually, to give some background on that, part of, one of the things that makes certain kinds of bugs really hard to find and solve is uh, the idea that you might already know what causes the bug, right? So, for example, you know, I could look at, let's say, a, like a kernel stack trace and say, oh, I've seen something that looks like this before. I know exactly what it is, and it's not that at all. Because, you know, this is, uh, I mean, there's a number of different biases. There's a, there's a confirmation bias problem here, particularly, which is like, hey, I already knew this thing, so now I know where, like, I've already seen something that looks like this, so therefore I know where this thing lives, even though that may not be true. So, um, you know, an example is we had uh, machines crashing with a somewhat specific bug um, and the reason for this was that, uh, there was a reference counting issue in a driver in the kernel, right? So, uh, if you're familiar with like the concept of reference counting, basically the idea is when you store, in this case, you store, uh, a bunch, you know, a value, uh, and then you have a bunch of things that, that basically count the number of references to that value. Right, so this isn't that useful in languages that don't have pointers, but it's, you know, it's relevant nonetheless. Basically, right. the the idea is that if if you mess up this reference counting thing, you end up in a situation where you're outside of the bounds of memory that the driver has allocated in Slab, which basically means that you're corrupting memory, which is uh, what ultimately causes the host to crash. But this actually manifested itself in two different ways. And if you don't actually have, like, the kind of um, ability to introspect into why that might be happening and how these two things are different, you might end up in a situation where you think that the one bug or two bugs are actually one. Um, and so that really being able to focus on, on why those kinds of bugs are happening uh, is incredibly uh, useful because without the ability to kind of say, okay, I'm going to actually take a fresh look at this, you end up naturally, just because of how human brains work, going back to the thing that you've seen before. Another rule that you had for debugging systems is to reproduce the issue. And in distributed systems, there are often bugs that are really, really tricky to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So is this a hazard that engineers just have to settle for like sometimes there are bugs that you that you just have to work really hard to reproduce or is is there you know can there be non-reproducible bugs that aren't necessarily a sign that your system has been architected incorrectly that's a good question i mean so at some point there are bugs that are not bugs right so like a great example is you know it recently came out that Intel shipped a bunch of CPUs that have bugs in them, right? And, like, even processors have feature flippers, right? So, like, at a, at a certain point, you're like, okay, this is just physics happening. Um, but above that, there are, like, really, really complicated non-deterministic bugs that are hard to find. I, I personally strive to reproduce stuff as much as possible because if I can build a reproduction case then I can end up 
being able to basically uh, test lots of different theories very quickly. Whereas if I don't have that, then I have to basically deploy my software into production to see if it if anything changes, right? And so that's you know a consideration, right? So uh, you used to work at Red Hat on mm-hmm. virtualization, as you mentioned. How does that compare to working at DigitalOcean? Um, it's very very different. Um, so Red Hat's a 10,000-person company. DigitalOcean, uh, when I joined, was, you know, basically two orders of magnitude smaller than that. Um, less, actually less than, more than two orders of magnitude uh, smaller than that. Um, I always forget about the inversion of magnitude. But anyways, um, the, uh, you know, they're very different places, right? So um Part of that is because we're a service provider, and Red Hat is is is, is a software company, really. Um, and so those are kinds of differences. But mainly, it's just based on the size, right? So uh, when I worked at Red Hat, my team was based in Israel, um, and you know, as distributed, uh, I work locally at DigitalOcean. Although we do, ha- we're about half remote, um, which is a really cool thing about about Do. Uh, my team is uh, three people in the office and three remote, uh, so we're exactly split. Um, and so, you know, they're pretty different places, mostly because of their different focus, right? Red Hat is focused on selling into the enterprise, which means reliability um, and and maintainability is a huge thing, right? We actually control the entire environment at DigitalOcean, so we get to make some of those decisions on the behalf of... Um, our customers, right? Whereas in the case of Red Hat, taking you're taking Red Hat software and running it in your own data center. Okay, so I want to begin to close off by talking a bit about where this market is going and how it affects the software engineers who are customers of this environment. How do you expect the customer expectations around cloud service providers to change in the future? As people move lots of, or, you know, in some cases, their entire infrastructure onto cloud infrastructure providers, the pressure to drive high reliability throughout the systems is incredible, is is increasing, right? Um, And I think that will continue to happen. The centralization that's happening in the marketplace basically means that we... uh, along with Amazon and Google and, um, and you know, a number of other providers have, you know, an increased amount of pressure uh, in terms of, like, building reliable systems. Um, and so that, I think that will continue. Um, so that's something that I expect to definitely see in the market. When I think about consumer operating systems, I think about the, the evolution of Windows as kind of the dominant consumer player, and then the rise of OSX and, and Apple. Um, and in both cases, it was kind of, it's kind of been this, like, there is an agreed upon, you know, this is the best uh, end, end user experience. I mean, obviously, there are people who will, you know, debate you debate you on that. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're arguing by a wisdom of the crowds 
sort of thing um, in each of these eras, the Windows era and the Mac OS X era for the consumer, the operating system market was was pretty much defined by one uh, you know player that took over the entire end user system. And I'm, I'm curious if you think that the future of of cloud hosting is the same or if it's different. So like there's all these cloud service providers, you know, there's like Google, uh, DigitalOcean, IBM, AWS, Azure. Uh, is it, is this going to continue? Is this going to be just like the operating system market where the consumer operating system market over the past two or three decades, where it's just like essentially dominated by one player. And then there's like a bunch of long tails or is it different? Is it, is it the case where, you know, maybe DigitalOcean handles, you know, the the random developers like me who just want to build a side project and then maybe scale it up into a company. And then AWS handles these giant infrastructure sort of things. And Azure handles these, uh, I don't know, o- like older business operations that are already on Windows and they want to implement machine learning into their uh, legacy systems. I don't know, what what is the future of all these different cloud service providers? Can they actually differentiate themselves, or are they offering the same thing with slightly different wrapping paper? That's a great question. I don't actually know if I have a great answer for it. My personal hope is that it won't go the way of the desktop operating system, um, where you basically have a hegemonic power um, that controls the landscape for a while, but, but rather that there are a bunch of different providers that offer different services and and target different customers, right? I think that's the thing that made DigitalOcean different uh, and made us stand out in the beginning was like, hey, this isn't AWS, this isn't Rackspace, this isn't Azure, it's DigitalOcean. Um, and, you know, I think um, to some degree, we're selling a commodity. On the other hand, we're selling a, a user experience, which is not a commodity, um, and so there's these two kind of divergent paths, I would say. I don't know which way the market's going to go. I, I certainly hope it goes towards diversification. Mm. Okay. Well, that sounds like a, a great place to close off. Uh, this has been a super interesting conversation. Sam, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. I'm obviously a huge fan of DigitalOcean, and uh, I thank DigitalOcean for being sponsors of Software Engineering Daily. Um so thanks. Awesome. Thank you for having me, Jeff.